Well, good morning. Good to see you. What an exciting week and day that this has been. There's a lot of great things happening, one of which we have a missions team right now in Peru uh, serving there on behalf of Jesus Christ and East Bay Calvary Church. And um, I wanted to send them a text sometime this week. And I thought, how about we do it right now? So I'm going to take a selfie with you all in it. Not every week we get to do this in church, so let's, let's have some fun. Okay. Boy, you guys look terrible, really. <laughs> I don't like that angle of my head either. <laughs> I haven't looked up there. It doesn't look pretty, let me tell you. Okay, let me see what I can do. I'll just give him the tippy top. I'm sure I'm going to hear about it. Uh, okay, come on, smile on the balcony. That's ridiculous, people. I didn't say cheer. I just said smile. Okay, there we go. We'll ship that off to him a little later. I'm going to turn it off so I don't pocket dial anybody. Um, we do need to remember to pray for our crew in Peru. So excited for what God is doing with them there. And um, let's just uh, pray for safety and encouraging time. And imagine meeting someone in heaven from Peru one day because we banded together and shipped a team out there to minister to them. I, that just excites me, so thankful for that. Um, last week we handed out our proposals both for the children's ministry direction and also for the um, replacement of the roof above the auditorium here. That'll be done next year. Those were handed out. If you didn't get one, maybe you were absent last week, there's a bunch of copies out here on the information table in the hub, so make sure you grab those. Now, today is just an informal time. Uh, it's not an official meeting, but downstairs in room 113, and if you're new here, you just go downstairs, you can see the numbers on the, on the doorways for 113, or it's across from the outpost, and um, those are classrooms over there. Sarah Fischel and myself will be there to answer any questions. If someone has questions or concerns or thoughts about the proposal, you can feel free to come. You don't have to go to it. It's not an official meeting. If you don't have questions or concerns, then go home and get dinner brewing. But if you do, then come on down and let's talk about it and answer whatever questions you may have, and we'll figure it out together. That's in room one. 13 downstairs after the service. Give me a few extra minutes. Um, I'll probably be down there about 10 minutes after the service ends, and we'll connect on that. Well, it's sad to see Obadiah finish up so soon. Here, This is my shortest message series of my life, three messages but it's a short book of the Bible, too, in Obadiah. And it's kind of interesting because here we open up the book of Obadiah, we start talking about it, and <clears throat> all of a sudden, Obadiah is everywhere. You ever buy a car and you're thinking, oh, I love this car, I've never seen it around. After you buy it, all of a sudden, you see him all over the place, you know? And, and such is the case with Obadiah. It's been so funny, the last two weeks, I've had people come to me and say, I have relatives named Obadiah. I'm like, really? And someone mentioned um, that they had a friend named Obadiah. I had someone text me this week of a, um, I think it was a job estimate that they had for some basement work, that they just got this job estimate a few weeks ago. And, and the job estimate, it said right on there, who did it? Obadiah was his name. It's just amazing to see how Obadiah pops up all over the place when we started um, to study his book. And today, we realize toward the end of Obadiah, there was some real unique judgment and thoughts that God gave to the Edomites. We're going to jump into that in a minute, but let me tell you, the Edomites were people of revenge, horrible revenge. I read two stories of revenge this week that I absolutely enjoyed. Here's what they are. 
when John Matar stepped outside his Chicago home on his birthday, he found two tons of manure piled eight feet high in his front yard. This uh, lovely present compliments of his brother in California, and it was the latest in this outlandish gift-giving duel that they had going on. It started years ago when John sent one of um, those insulting birthday cards to his brother in California, and then he got 50 insulting cards back. And so over the years, this is how it's gone. Um, one year, John received a pet rock on his birthday that tipped the scales at 4,000 pounds. John got a great idea and responded to his brother with 20,000 tons of pebbles delivered to his front yard and a note telling his brother that the pet rock had babies. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Over the years, gifts between the two have also included a lizard. In response, his brother delivered a full-grown elephant. And then his brother sent him for <clears throat> his birthday a singing quartet telegram. <clears throat> and he sent his brother two busloads of choir boys. That's just, just great. Here's my other favorite story of revenge. <clears throat> Some fellows were stationed in Korea during the Korean War, and while they were there, they hired a local boy to uh, cook and clean for them. And being a bunch of jokesters, these guys kind of took advantage of this poor little Korean boy and, um, and his seeming naivety. And here's what they did. Um, they, they'd take Vaseline and they'd smear it on the stove handles and whenever the little boy went up there and went to turn, he'd just get grease all over his hands. And then uh, they would put little water buckets on top of the door, you know, so he'd open the door and the water would come and dump on him. And then they'd even sneak up during the middle of the night and they would nail his shoes to the floor. These are all the things that they just did to him. And I'm sure some of you folks are like, these are great ideas, you know. So he just... Every day, he just took the brunt of all their practical jokes. He never said a word. <clears throat> there was no self-pity, no temper tantrums. He just kind of took it. And, and after a period of months, finally, these two guys were like, oh, we feel so guilty. This poor kid. And we're doing all this to him. It's just not right. And so they, they sat down with him, and they said, look, look, we know these pranks just really aren't funny. And the brother said, and, and we're just here to tell you, we, we really are sorry for taking advantage of you. And the, the houseboy, he just couldn't believe it. It was too good to be true. And he, and he said, no more sticky on stove? No. no. He said, no more water on door? And no, no more water on door. No more nail shoes to the floor? No, no more nail shoes to the floor. Okay, said the boy with his big smile. Me, no more spitting soup. <laughs> oh. Well, the main focus of this book of Obadiah is about God pronouncing judgment on Edom. Now, this is the interesting thing. Most of the books of the Bible are written to either Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God, or in the New Testament to his church, the people of God. Obadiah is a little different because the recipients, it was a pronouncement of judgment on the Edomites, unbelievers, not the people of God. And the whole context, if I can just reel it back just for a moment, the whole context of this is um, way back before this time period, there were two twin brothers that were born. Jacob was one. Esau were, was the other. They were not identical. In fact, they couldn't be farther from identical. 
And one was hairy and ruddy. That was Esau. He's the outdoorsman. The other one was very smooth skin, more the indoorsman and uh, cerebral type. And, and the younger one, Jacob, the smooth skin one, as the older one was being born, and this was a prophetic happening, the younger one actually reached out of the womb to grab the foot, the heel of the older one, saying, uh, 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 I want to be first. It's kind of how that was viewed. And ever since then, those two brothers have just been, they've just been at it nonstop. And what happened is not only did they fight, but then their descendants fought. And so Jacob's descendants were the Israelites. Esau's descendants were the Edomites, or those from Edom. And what happened here is the Israelites, God's chosen people, had been disobeying God, and God said, you know, I, need, I really need to punish them. They need to see that what they're doing is wrong. And so God sent in Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, and they defeated the Israelites, and they plundered them. And when they did, the Edomites ran in, and they as well took from Israel. They celebrated the demise of Israel. They took all of their things. Some even inhabited their homes. And they had this little party that Israel was going down and we took their things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And God said, you know what? I, I don't really take too kindly to Edom doing that to my people. And hence Obadiah said, here Edom is God's word for you. God's going to judge you. And everything that you're trusting in you think is going to protect you from God, it's not going to do a thing. And so here we step into this whole revenge scheme that Edom had on Israel, and it didn't work. And what we learned last week is God was true to his word. Bam, a hundred years after this edict, God used the allies of Edom to take Edom down. And everyone in that rock city of Petra and Edom surrounding was destroyed. All the Edomites there were dead. There's only one place that there were a few Edomites left. It was in Israel. When they ransacked Israel, a few of them went in and said, wow, I'm not only going to take their stuff, I'm going to live in their house. So there were some Edomites that remained in Israel. I'm about to tell you the name of the most famous Edomite that probably you never knew was an Edomite. And before we get to Obadiah, I want to take a quick detour. So if you would grab your copy of the scriptures or your iPad or your iPhone or whatever may be the case, and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> Matthew 2 is actually the Christmas story. And it doesn't feel much like Christmas around here right now. <clears throat> you probably haven't thought about the Christmas story lately. <clears throat> but I want to mention to you and introduce to you the most famous Edomite and Edom's last attempt to enact revenge on Israel. Now at this time here of this account, the Magi, and how many Magi were there? That's a trick question. We have no idea. We know they give three different gifts. And we know that the thing that you set out every Christmas has three magi. Um, but we really don't know how many there are. And, um, and forget that answer for when we give you a quiz at Christmas later on this year. <clears throat> and one of the rulers in Israel at the time of the magi coming, his name was Herod the Great. He ruled uh, from 37 B.C. until about 4 or 5 A.D. He was there during the time of Jesus. Rome ruled over Palestine. They utilized some of the local leaders, and that's how Herod the Great became a, a leader in Israel at that time, even though he was not an Israelite. Would you look here in Matthew chapter 2? Here's what happened. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. It mentions he'll be born in Bethlehem. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go worship him too. Let me just tell you the secret identity of the most famous Edomite you've never heard about in your entire life and known he was an Edomite, and that is this guy, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Edomite. And you know, I've always heard this story of the the Christmas story. I've always heard the story of the Magi who came and talked to Herod, and I've always heard, you know, Herod was this egotistical guy, and well, no one's going to rule Israel when I want to rule Israel. This was way more than that, people. Herod was an Edomite. And Israel now was under Rome power, and these magi showed up and said, this king of the Jews, this Messiah is going to rise up, this one who's going to bring Israel back to power? And Herod's like, not on my watch. He had a whole lot more at stake with him than merely, I'm king right now. Israel will never come back to power, was his motivation. And that is why the panic that's here. He says, hey, go, go see who he is and come back and I'll go worship him. Yeah, right. We knew that wasn't going to happen. And so it ends up, if you notice down here a little bit later, verse 12, there was a dream that went to the Magi, and they said, don't go back to Herod in the dream. And so they returned to their country by another route. They just completely rerouted around Herod. Notice verse 13. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child, his mother, and go to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so that's exactly what they did. They got up. Now notice verse 16. This is what happened. Herod realized he had been outwitted. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Folks, this is, this is how psychotic this rivalry was between Edom and Israel where Herod went and killed every boy in this vast region that was two years old and under just to make sure Israel wouldn't come back to power that was Edom's last stand at revenge now I love it <clears throat> jump back to Obadiah if you would the book of Obadiah The three main lessons of Obadiah ran true, not only in this book that we've been studying the last two weeks, it also rang true in the Christmas story. And here's the coolest thing. We learned in week one, God rescues his kids. God rescues his kids, and he did. Not only Israel, but he rescued his very own son, Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 2 and rescued him from Herod and that devised revenge of the Edomites to get back at Israel to make sure they never came into power. We also learned the second lesson that we talked about last week. God is unstoppable. And here this whole devised scheme of Herod and, and his passion to take all of these kids out just to kill the Messiah, it didn't get anywhere with God. God's like, okay, dream to the Magi, boom, reroute. Angel to Joseph, boom, go down to Egypt, and whoop, the whole thing taken care of. And for God to be able to see all of that and take care of it, make sure that, that none of that plan came, it just showed God is completely unstoppable. And then it showed, number three, putting trust in anything else 
besides God is a losing proposition. It will never get us anywhere to trust anyone outside of God. Our trust should be ultimately in him. So here we are now in the book of Obadiah. We're just going to finish up in verse 15 on down, and then we will shut the book on Obadiah and remember the lessons that he's had for us. Here we go. The text opens up in verse 15. How you doing this morning? You awake? You with me? Is it a little bit warm here? No? It must be just me. I almost feel like a televangelist with a sweat running off me, but as I found out in my selfie, I don't have the hair for that. So, hey, why don't you just stand up for a second? I just, let's get the blood flowing. I just want you to stretch just for a moment. I'm going to read verses 15 right on down to verse 21. Here's Obadiah. The day of the Lord is near, he says. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion in Israel, will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Remember Jacob the Israelites. Jacob, the Israelites, will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau, the Edomites, will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau or Edom. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Okay, here we go. Last moments in Obadiah. Have a seat. <clears throat> we start this last section of Obadiah with a phrase, and it's repeated here in this book of Obadiah, and it's also an apt repeated phrase throughout the entire Bible. I believe in the Bible the phrase, the day of the Lord, is repeated 86 times. So we know this thought of the day of the Lord is a very important thought if God repeats it 86 times throughout the Bible. What does the day of the Lord mean? What, what is he getting at when he says the day of the Lord will come? Well, I want us to give us, I want to give us a few phrases that help to describe contextually what the day of the Lord means, and I think that this will give an idea of God, of his judgment, of his power, of his rule. So follow these with me. Number one, the day of the Lord, and all of these are on your East Bay Weekly, if you got your study guide that's on the back, <clears throat> these are all right there for us. The day of the Lord means this. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to get some more water. <clears throat> Good. Go for another hour now. The day of the Lord means this. It means God gets the final word. The day of the Lord means that God gets the final word. This is such a repeated thought throughout all of scripture not just stuffed in the old testament it typically speaks of a day of reckoning or that rapid awareness of severe accountability and this severe accountability comes after a long stretch maybe of reckless living let me put it this way, for some who may feel that reckoning after a time of maybe reckless living, 
It would be like the eviction notice when instead of paying our rent, we partied all month. Or the car being towed away when instead of paying the loan, we bought the new TV and phone. And they were so cool at the time. This is so great. And then also, whoop, there goes my car. Or whoop, it's time to move out. Or I remember a day of reckoning for myself when my parents told my brother and I, hey, we're going to be gone for a couple hours. Um, while we're gone, we want you and your brother to clean the garage. And uh, we're like, great, okay, we'll clean the garage, no biggie. We went in the garage, we're starting to dig around in there. And, um, and we look like, sweet. We have not seen these baseball mitts and balls for a long time. And we're like, chucking ball and having a great time. Well, we better get back to clean. So we put those away. And then like five minutes later, we found these old sticks that we use as swords. We're like, awesome. And we're doing this and we're playing around and we're chasing each other. And little did we know, like two hours went by like that. And all of a sudden we hear my parents pulling in the driveway. And you ever had that feeling where like, hey, everything's so great. And all of a sudden, you know, panic, sheer, absolute panic came over both of us. Like, oh, we are dead. And we were dead. I mean, that was a day of reckoning for both of us that our therapist just got us over recently. And Edom was in party mode. Israel was taken down. They went in there and they had a blast. They took their stuff. Notice there were some things that they did there that was really bad. It mentions that they had drank on my holy hill, verse 16. You want to know what most likely happened? When they took over Israel and they went and ransacked, they went right to Jerusalem. They went right to the temple. They probably had a party. They drunk it up. They most likely had some kind of orgy right there in God's temple and celebrated the demise of Israel. And here at the end of all of it, God says, a day of the Lord is coming for you. It is this time that God gets the final word. Here's the second thing. Did you notice this little detour that God took here in Obadiah? Look at verse 15. There's three words. I want us to all read them in just a moment. It says, the day of the Lord is near. There's three words in my translations. Who is it for? For all. Okay, it's nice to have two of you here with me this morning. What a treat. Um, the day of the Lord is near for all, all nations, all of them. Some people might be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What does he mean by all nations? I thought we were just talking about Edom here. I thought Edom was bad in treating God's people bad, and so God went and, and is going to take care of them. For all nations? So I looked up all nations, and you know what it means? All nations. All nations? All nations. Because God's panning out. He was looking at Edom on a zoom lens. Now he's panning out and he's saying, you know what? There's going to be another day of the Lord. And it's going to be for the whole globe. It's not merely just for Edom and how they handled my people. It's going to be for the entire globe, all nations of the world. Initially, the book was just about Edom, and now all of a sudden, things are changing, and all nations that alienated God and put him on the outside and on the periphery, 
Verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Those that put me on the periphery, guess what? The day of reckoning is going to come for you too. Verse 16, the nations that went up against Israel will be brought down. It says, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. And gang, at some point in time, we need to make sure we have a talk about end time stuff. Because that's what he's dealing with right here. He's saying there is going to be a time, it is going to come in the future. It is not merely just Edom, but God says, I'm going to deal with every people group, every nation on the entire globe. And it's going to be with how they dealt with me and how they dealt with my people, Israel. And we're going to chat about end time stuff in another day. We'll have to figure out when that'll be. But suffice to say right now, all nations of the earth, all nations of the earth one day will be as Edom is now. We'll talk about another time. On that day, Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, is a prophecy I'll give you right now. On that day, it mentions when all nations of the earth are gathered against Israel. God says, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves, period. It'll be for all nations of the world. There's a really unique imagery. I don't know that we see it here. He mentions verse 16, as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. This is a little different imagery. Maybe you looked at it and you thought, is he talking about like an alcoholic beverage? He's talking about them being drunk. What's he talking about? Well, interesting, whenever God talks about his judgment, he talks about drinking from a cup. Sometimes he talks about his cup of wrath. And, and the imagery that's there is sometimes, especially in Old Testament times, they would take a concoction and put in various herbs or plants that could be poisonous and imagine them brewing it up and hitting it up and all of the sediment goes down to the bottom. And someone unknowingly may drink it. And when they get toward the bottom and they see the sediment or the dregs, and then they realize, ooh, I'm in trouble. I just drank something I shouldn't have, and they end up dying. It, it kind of reminds me, um, I had a friend that I actually did ministry with, and he was telling me about his very first morning after being married. And he and his wife were on their honeymoon, and he was a big coffee drinker, and she woke up early. She wanted to please him so much. And so she went, and she, um, she boiled the water and got it up to nice temperature. And then she went over, and she scooped out two teaspoons of coffee, and she stirred it up for him and kept stirring. And how come that stuff isn't going down? And she kept stirring. And then finally she got it down, and she went in, and here you go. And he just woke up, and she's smiling and she hands him his cup of coffee, and he, he this is the first test of true love. And he's taking some, he's like, oh, you know, and she's like, is everything fine? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, and he takes a little bit more, and then finally the, she'd only seen her parents make instant coffee. And so she actually grabbed coffee grounds and poured in there and kept, oh. Finally, he's starting to pour it out, and here's all these grounds that were just settled there on the bottom, you know. And, and, but that's the kind of imagery that God has with drinking from his cup of judgment. And he says, you know what? They are going to drink it, and they are going to drink it, and drink, and drink all the way down to the bottom and be just as if they'd never, ever been. They'll be gone. So the day of the Lord means God gets the final word. It means it's going to be for all nations of the world. 
Here's another one it means. It means that Israel will be fully restored. Israel will be fully restored and God will reign forever. The text is pretty plain, folks. Verse 18 and 19, as a national force, Israel will be restored. The text mentions Jacob is a fire and Joseph is a flame and Esau will go down in stubble and be destroyed. There will be no survivors. It's going to be a national force. And then verses 19 and 20 talk about all of these hard-to-pronounce names. And you wonder, what's he dealing with there? He's saying, you know what? Every place that I gave Israel... All the way back in Genesis 12, when God stepped up to the plate with Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a nation, and here's what it is, God says, you know what? At the end, that national territory is going to be Israel's as well. Now, I am sure right now there may be a little tiny bit of panic in some minds, and I understand some people think, Pastor, are you starting to go political on us? You're talking about political things like the West Bank and whose territory is that and how do we, how do we deal with this and, and peace treaties and whose side do we end up on and don't we just want things good? And I, I'm sure there are some people who say, Pastor, stay out of politics. Well, I will stay out of politics and I will stay in the Bible and let me tell you what the Bible says. God made a promise to Abram and says, I'm going to give you this land. And the Bible says, when all is done and every nation has tried to take it away, at the end of the earth, Israel, you are going to have this land. And he says, and if anyone gets in my way, you're in trouble. Now, I, I wasn't political. I was just biblical. Sadly, some politicians are trying to mess with the biblical. <clears throat> it's amazing. When all this talk about Israel, even on the news, all the discussion about the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and Palestine and the occupancy of all of this, all the discussion, hey, we just, can we get them to give up a little bit? Do you, are we familiar with how big Israel is? I just, let me give you a few visuals here. You've got to see this. Here's the first slide for us here. Um, this, is, this is Israel superimposed on California. And um, you see the light teal blue up there? That is that little tiny strip called the West Bank. That, that is what all of this international hubbub and explosion is all about. You think, really? Over that little piece of land? Yeah, that's what it is. Here's another visual of how small Israel is. Okay, here's the United States of America. Look at how tiny Israel is. And I'm sure you can easily see the, the West Bank there. On What? We're, there's all of this fuss about that? Here's the last analogy of how small it is. There's Israel and there's New Jersey. The only difference between them is people aren't leaving Israel in droves. Sorry for all you Jersey people out there. I was born there, so thankfully God saved me. And that's why I don't say words like wooder. I don't know. Anyways, um, realize how tiny? Like, all of it's about this little piece of land? And it's more than that. What it's really about, all of it is about God's promise. And God made a promise. Oh, and if you could just 
embrace this for a moment. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps it. And if God's going to keep his promise to Israel, I gave you this land, it's going to be yours. No one's going to take it away. I'm going to, at the very end, when everyone's trying to steal your toys, at the very end, we're going to put it all back together and say, here you are. God makes a promise like that, he keeps it. Wow. Here's the cool thing. God makes a promise to you, he keeps it. God says, I'm never going to leave you, never. I'm never going to walk away from you, ever. God says, in your darkest time, I am your rock, I am your shield. To have that protection and care from him, it's always there. God says, I am going to supply all of your needs. In Christ Jesus, does it. God is a God who keeps his promises. And in all of the hubbub, would you go back to the U.S. one? In all the hubbub of Israel and the land and all of it, God says to Israel, don't you worry about anyone. And here they have been surrounded for millennia by people who have screamed death to Israel, destruction to Israel. And it blows me away because the U.S. is 242 years old. Israel is 5,000 years old, people. And there's only one way that they still exist today on the face of this planet, surrounded by venomous enemies, is that they're... God, even if they don't fully acknowledge him, is still protecting his kids. And we got to finish up. The day of the Lord means God will bring justice to those who oppose God and his people. It means Israel will be fully restored. And I love the last phrase. Just look at the last phrase of the whole book. And this is the beauty of it. What's going to happen at the very end? What's going to happen when all nations of the world are dealt with by God. This is the coolest thing. Spoiler alert. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. God's going to be over all. So I just want to finish up with one question. What's going to happen to you on the day of the Lord? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it theoretically. Gang, can I just lay it out there? The day of the Lord will be for all. Now, it may show up in one of two ways. Number one, it may show up when Jesus comes back. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that at some other time. Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom. And the reality is, those who still remain here are going to be faced with the day of the Lord. And that, for some, may very well be their day if they do not pass before that. But here's the second way it comes, and this has been the way it's been for everyone up to this point. We pass. We die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Or guess what? After that, the day of the Lord. We see Jesus face to face. It's a day of reckoning. Where are we at that day? And let's not wonder, you know, oh, that's a ways off, gang. I did a funeral this week for a 28-year-old young man. We have no idea when that day is. And so I just want to plainly ask you, when that day comes and you stand before Jesus Christ face to face, how are you going to fare? I want to tell you the only way we're that we'll fare well, and it's with this. Some people ask, how do, how, how do I get on the side of the Lord? How do I know I'm going to be okay on that day? Here's the cool thing. It all starts with that little baby 
that Herod tried to kill. Jesus Christ. And he not only is the king of the Jews, he is the king of our rescue because the Bible says he came to seek and save that which was lost. That's us, gang. And how do we get on the side of the Lord? It's, it's this. It is this truth. We need to embrace it. We need to hold it dear in our hearts. And it's the truth that Jesus Christ, he came to earth to take on himself this punishment for our sin. And I've explained it this way, and I'm going to continue to do so until I have no more breath left in me. Our sin, all of our wrong, needs to be punished by a just God. And, and God says, I will punish my sin, and our sin will be punished in one of two ways. Either we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was punished for our sin, and we're forgiven. Or we say, that's nonsense, I don't believe it with all my heart, and the Bible says, okay, then your sin will be punished, and you're the one that'll bear the punishment for it one day in hell. It's going to be punished. Either we believe Jesus was punished for it, or we'll bear our own punishment for it. And if we want to be on the side of God on the day of the Lord, if we want to stand before him and him say, come on in, our sin needs to be cared for, and the only way for it to be cared for is through Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the verses that make that clear. The book of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the big one. No one, nobody, comes to the Father except by me. It's all through Jesus Christ. Here's the other one. The book of Acts they say it loud and clear. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. No other name except the name of Jesus Christ. And some think they can get around the hand of the Lord. Some think they can get around the day of the Lord. You know, when I get to heaven, I can smooth talk. And I can say, hey, I was this, I was good. It's not going to happen. The only way around the eternal just judgment of God is to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, that he died for you in your place and took God's punishment that we deserved on himself. To affirm your belief that Jesus took your judgment for you when he died on the cross, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask him to change you, to ask him to give you eternal life rather than the judgment we deserve. There's only one God Folks, there's only one king. There is no equal. There is no rival. There's no competition. There's no one who will ever stand against him. He is unstoppable. He is undefeated. He will always be. And in the end, as Obadiah ends, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Yeah, amen. Amen. So we say to our friend Obadiah, it has been nice meeting you, sir. And maybe the next time you hear his name, we'll be on the other side. And we say thank you for the lessons that we've learned. Would you pray with me? Father, there is no equal, no rival. You have no competition. You started it all, and you will complete it all. God, I think I can speak on behalf of my friends here when we acknowledge the reality that there have been plenty of times we thought we could do this on our own and that we could make up our own rules and somehow we'll get into heaven our own way or we've lacked trust in you and we've thought, you know what, maybe my charted course is so much better. God, forgive us. Lord, we have to say a huge thank you for Jesus, 
for his sacrifice for our sin. For this rescuing us from the just punishment that we deserve for our wrong. God, for anyone here who has yet to come to grips with that and embrace it, realize it, please touch us today. May today be the turnaround where we just say, I'm on the wrong side of this. God, forgive me. By Jesus, forgive me. Make me your kid. I want to be on your side. We celebrate, God, you're the only king, the only God, no rival. No one can come close. Thank you for loving us and drawing us to yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Bible also says a number of different places, but one of my favorites is in the book of Philippians uh, where the Apostle Paul mentions the reality that one day, Every knee will bow, and every tongue, every mouth will voice the words, every language on this entire ball that we walk on will say these words, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the boss. It's to our betterment to know it now, rather than on the day of the Lord. Hey, isn't it great to be together, folks? God bless your week. God bless your week, and I I just pray that you have a really good ministry in your little world that you're in, and um, touch some people for Jesus this week. Possibly you want to link up with Sarah Leitz with our TC Cares, and if that's something that you're interested in doing and helping tangibly with the needs of people in Traverse City. Sarah is in a light blue shirt in the foyer that says TC Cares. That should help you out pretty well to find her. Ask questions of her and how you can get connected. I believe that's coming up in September sometime. In about 10 minutes, I'm going to be downstairs in room 113 along with Sarah Fischel. If you have concerns or questions about the two proposals we gave you, I don't even know if I'm pointing in the right direction, but um, it's downstairs somewhere in room 113. Hey, God bless your week. See you next Sunday.